Ravi Zacharias, the Indian-born, Canadian-American Christian apologist, author of 25 books, college campus speaker, host of the weekly radio program, Let My People Go, highly regarded defender of traditional evangelicalism, has called higher criticism of the Bible the hat pin in the heart of Christian thought. Now, the higher criticism he's referring to originated in the early 19th century when German theologians sought to demythologize the Bible and called into question the authorship and authenticity of the Bible by stripping it of divine authority and authorship, they made the Bible into just another piece of literature open to attack and critique. Its definitive role for faith and conduct was dismissed, and its injunctions were delegitimized. In short, the signature of God upon the Scriptures was deemed a forgery. It was no longer a God-authored book, but a man-concocted collection. Robbie says higher criticism of the Bible is the dizzying punch delivered from within the church that made possible the secularism we see in our society today. The effects of that thinking still permeates churches and seminaries and Christians. It was an attack on God's Word. But you know, the attack on God's Word is nothing new. In fact, the very first recorded words of Satan were, Indeed, has God said? God's Word has been called into question since the Garden of Eden. And it was obviously being called into question in Peter's day. We know that to be the case because in our text for today, he begins, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He then goes on to make it very clear that what he and the other apostles were saying was the truth. It was true. They know it. They knew it because it was witnessed, it was prophesied, and it was revealed. It's important that we understand what Peter has to say this morning because attacks on the authority of God's word continue even today. Peter begins by making clear their testimony was witnessed. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. It's obvious that Peter 
and the other apostles were being accused of spreading myths about Jesus, about his power and his coming. Now, whether this reference to his coming is a reference to his second coming or just his earthly ministry, we really don't know. But either way, the situation is the same. Some thought that what the apostles said about Jesus' life and power and probably his return was nothing more than a fable. Surely no one could do the things they said Jesus had done or would do. No one could be born of a virgin. No one could give sight to the blind, bring hearing to the deaf, cleanse the lepers, calm the storms, raise the dead. And no one could himself rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and be coming back the same way he went. That had to be a fairy tale. Peter said, no, it's the truth. It's the truth. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I was there. I saw it. I saw his power. I saw his miracles. I saw him after the resurrection. I saw him taken into heaven. And I'm not the only one. We were eyewitnesses. When John wrote his gospel, he said of himself, And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. And he began his first letter with these words, What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. They were eyewitnesses. And they weren't the only ones. Multitudes witnessed Jesus' miracles. Over 500 saw the resurrected Jesus at one time. And most of those people were still alive when this was being recorded. So you could check up on it. Did you really see that? Yes, we were there. What was recorded about Jesus was true. And there was no doubt in the minds of the apostles about his second coming. They had seen him ascend into heaven, and they heard the angels say, This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way you've watched him go into heaven. And even before that, Peter and James and John had witnessed the majesty of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were there when his divine nature was revealed. When his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. They were there when Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and began talking with Jesus about what was going to happen in Jerusalem, about his death, his burial. His resurrection. And they heard the voice of God himself 
When he declared from a cloud, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. No, the apostles didn't follow cleverly devised tales when they made known to us the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The record they left for us was the truth and nothing but the truth. They wrote what they actually saw and what they heard. What was written was witnessed. And it was prophesied. He continues. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, the the phrase, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure, can also be translated, and we have the even surer prophetic word. The Greek allows either translation, and we really have no way to know which way Peter intended for it to be read. If we translate it, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure, he would be saying that the things he and the other apostles witnessed confirmed what had been prophesied. If we take it the other way, and we have the ever surer prophetic word, he would be saying his own personal experiences and observances are confirmed as true by what the prophets said. Now, if we apply this verse to our own experiences, I prefer the second translation. I believe we should confirm our thoughts and conclusions about our personal experiences by the word, not the word by our experiences. If we want to know whether or not what we are experiencing is of God, we go to the Word and find out if it's, if it's consistent with what God has said. We don't interpret the Word of God by our subjective experiences and our personal desires. This is really important. So often, you know, we experience something and we say, well, that must be God. And we reinterpret the scriptures by our personal subjective experiences. That's very dangerous. It's much more important that we go back to the word and say, is what I'm experiencing and what I think I've seen and what I think I've heard and what someone's telling me, is this what the Bible really says? Go to the word to confirm your experiences. Not the other way, okay? That's really, really important for us. Now, when it comes to Peter... Both understandings are equally valid because he had firsthand experience with the living Lord. He knew what he had seen was of God because God was standing there talking to him. He touched him. He heard him. He saw him. He was with him. He had firsthand experiences. His religious experiences weren't subjective, something that came just in his mind. They were objective. And they confirmed what he read in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament certainly confirmed what he saw in Jesus and heard from his lips. So either way, the bottom line is that the things he witnessed, 
and the things witnessed in the prophetic word both confirmed that what he and the other apostles were saying about Jesus was true. And the prophetic nature of the word certainly confirms it to be true. At least 38 specific prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus. His ancestry and the fact that he was to be born of a virgin were prophesied. The time and place of his birth was foretold. The massacre of the infants and his flight into Egypt, his ministry in Galilee, his rejection by the Jews, his triumphal entry and betrayal and trial and treatment at the hands of the authorities, his death, burial, resurrection and ascension were all prophesied centuries before. The prophetic word is sure. Most of it has already come true. But there's still some to come because the prophets also told of Jesus' return. He is coming back. The prophets of God have told us so. And Peter says we should pay attention to the prophetic word. In fact, it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. When others are in darkness and see no hope, We have the lamp of prophecy to bring light into our life. And Peter tells us to pay attention to that prophetic word until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Beautiful phrases. And they can mean a couple of interesting things because the day dawning can refer to the day the scriptures bring light and truth into your life. Ah, I see. Or it can refer to the day when that which is prophesied is fulfilled. And the morning star arising in your heart can refer to Jesus becoming real in your heart. Or it can refer to the actual return of Jesus. And the joy you will feel in your heart when you see him in the sky. Either way makes sense. And both understandings are true. As we read the scriptures, the day does dawn for us. And the morning star does indeed arise in our hearts. And the day is coming when everything in the scripture will be fulfilled. The prophets spoke, and what they prophesied about the coming of a Savior came true. Jesus fulfilled it. And we have eyewitness testimony to that fact. That same prophetic word also tells us he's coming back. And everything, everything that the prophets told us is sure because it was revealed. Again, Peter continues. But know this, first of all. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. No prophecy of Scripture came from a man's mind. The prophets didn't decide what to say. And we aren't given the liberty to decide 
what to believe. Scripture is not a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, Peter's not saying that you can't read the Scriptures for yourself and let them speak to your heart. But he is saying that you cannot sit in judgment over the Scriptures and decide what is and what isn't true. What you will accept and what you will reject. The prophets weren't free to say whatever they wanted to say. They were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what God wanted them to write. The word moved is an interesting word. It's a maritime word. It pictures the prophets like ships with their sails up, ready to be filled with the breath of God and to be taken wherever he wanted them to go. They weren't given a choice as to what to say, only whether or not to be used by God. They didn't decide what to include or exclude. They took it all, or they weren't prophets of God. And that's the same way we must approach the Word of God. We are not free to interpret it any way we want. To take what we want and leave the rest. It's not our place to say, I can't buy that. Or, I don't believe that. Or, that's just Paul talking. No authentic prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. And no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. We are not free to read it any way we want. We're obligated to read it as it was written. Now, that doesn't mean we just read the words without thinking, without striving to understand what they mean. We do have to apply the fundamental rules of interpreting literature to Scripture. We do have to keep a passage being read in context and know who was writing and the circumstances under which it was written. And we should seek to understand the language being used and its grammatical structure so we can discern what was meant when it was written. But we are not free to go off on our own and make it say whatever we want it to say. God revealed his word to us so it could be understood and acted upon. It's not vague. It's not open to personal interpretation. It's the straightforward revelation of his will. If we approach it as such, we can understand what he's saying. Now, that's not to say that there might not be slight differences of opinion as to the meaning or application of a particular passage. But by and large, we will all agree that it means what it says. It's the truth. It was witnessed, it was prophesied, 
it was revealed. It's not our place to sit in judgment over God's Word. No matter how many degrees we have, no matter how much authority organizations have given to us, or how smart we think we are, it's not our place to sit in judgment over God's Word. We take it at face value. We know what's in here is true. We don't play games with it. We don't do what Jefferson did and cut out things we don't like. He actually took a razor blade to the Bible and cut things out. I don't like that one. Don't like that one. Now, we may not be so bold to take a razor blade to our Bible, but we have a tendency to say, eh, I don't want to hear that. That doesn't apply to me. We play games with God's Word. And it's so easy to mold it into something that we are writing instead of what God has authorized and written through the hand of His Holy Spirit. It's essential that we take God's Word at face value. It's the truth. We may not understand it all. Things are recorded as having happened historically that aren't happening today. That doesn't mean they didn't happen then. It just means they haven't happened here at us, with us. It's the truth. Don't let anyone demean God's word. It was witnessed. It was prophesied. It was revealed. And it's our place to trust in its authenticity and to obey it. End of story. Let's stand.